0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. One of the advantages of this job is I get to meet amazing people from all over the world, authors, storytellers from different continents who are sharing their stories in unique and uplifting and encouraging, just powerful ways. And so I'd love to introduce my guest today who comes to us from originally the United Kingdom. Will Dean grew up in the East Midlands. And after studying law at the London School of Economics and working in London, he settled in rural Sweden where he built a wooden house in a vast forest. And it's from this base that he compulsively reads and writes. His debut novel, Dark Pines, was shortlisted for the National Book Award in the UK and was named a Telegraph Book of the Year. He's published eight novels and has a new book out called The Last One, if you're purchasing it here in the United States, or The Last Passenger is the title in the UK, and he's joining me here today. Will, thanks for being here.
1: Stephen, thank you very much for having me on. I'm, I'm looking forward to our chat.
0: Now, I have to ask the first question is about this house. I read the bio and it said he has built this house in a vast forest. That's the first person I've ever introduced on a show that has built a house in a vast forest. Now, I have to ask, is it in the literal middle of the forest or how do you get to your, actually your home? Tell us just a little bit about what, what, is that, um, what does that mean? <laughs> where, where is that?
2: <laughs> okay, it's
1: it's the literal middle of the forest. It's like, if you imagine a dartboard or a, a target, it's the bullseye. It's a little tiny clearing at the center of a massive moose forest. in central sweden so as i'm talking to you now from this little cabin i can hike for a full day in any direction i'm still in the same forest and i probably haven't seen anybody yeah yeah. it's like a horror movie
0: (laughs) no that's fantastic i love that so what was it that led you to say i'm going to seek out some isolation here where i can hike for a day and uh, not necessarily even see another soul
1: so it was my childhood was uh, I was brought up in the East Midlands, like you said, which is very rural, mm. and quiet and isolated. And I love that. And then um, and I, I was brought up in a house with no books. Mm. So no books and no no readers whatsoever. Uh, the only thing we had was like a few shopping catalogs. That's all. But oh. my mom, bless her, would let me go to the local library and like take out as many books as I possibly could. So it's thanks to librarians that I'm a reader and a writer. I would say I that. So it's all down to them. Yeah. And um, and it was very rural. We grew some of our own food, like quite a lot of our own food. And then when I was 18, I was the first person in my family to go to college. So I went hmm. to the London School of Economics, like you said. And then I stayed in London for 15 years in a tiny one-bed apartment working. And I just, I had this constant craving, like I want to grow potatoes. You know? I want to <laughs> grow my own food. and i was very lucky i met a swedish girl who was way out of my league and uh we got together and then she was like maybe we should go and try living in sweden and i said yeah maybe we should try living in the middle of the forest and she she wasn't sure about that (laughs) Uh, and we had a deal like we'll (laughs) we'll try and build a, a little cabin and after six months, if she likes it, we'll stay. And if she doesn't like it, we'll sell it and we'll leave and live like normal people. And we've been here like 12 years now. So
0: Congratulations. I'm very grateful to I her love for that. giving it a go. No, that's, Thank you. that's Thank kind you. of romantic too and in a very nice sense. So it's like you said, let's give it a go. And there you are. So I've always loved the outdoors and where I live in Tennessee, we live near the Appalachian Mountains. And so hiking and uh, mountain biking and so on are very popular where I live. And um, I just, um, I honestly feel like getting out into the great outdoors or nature, or whatever terms you might want to use, really does kind of help center me and in a certain way and help me to focus and think in um, kind of a new and creative ways. Do you find that uh, solitude, really f- helps to facilitate your creativity or just the natural world? Does that really benefit you as you're working on your creative projects?
1: It does for me. I think it depends on the person. Like for yeah. us, it works, but some people it, it wouldn't work. I need a balance of roughly 95 to five. So 95% quiet time in the woods, uh, I need to be bored and that's increasingly difficult hmm. these days with phones and, and, and YouTube and social media and email. So I need to be bored some of the time to have, let the ideas have some space to develop. So I, it's good to be bored in the woods. You know, if I'm walking in the woods with my dog, or I'm chopping wood, and we live off grid, so I have to chop a lot of wood just to cook and heat and have hot water. Uh, if I'm if I'm doing that, then I'm just letting my mind wander. You know, I'm doing. It's a bit like driving. You have ideas because you one part of your brain is doing the thing, and another part of your brain just has free reign to go and come up with ideas.
0: I think that's pretty interesting. Many years ago, I worked at a um, at a, a summer camp as the program director. And uh, I remember going to a seminar where there was this guy who was basically teaching us how to interview people for uh, the jobs. Anyway, one of the questions he said is, ask your people, what do they do when they get bored? I thought that was an interesting interview question to ask these summer counselors and camp counselors, um, this is years, years and years ago, but I've always remembered that question. It's like today there, as you mentioned, there are so many distractions, so many opportunities. As soon as you get, let's just say bored or your mind sort of filters out other things to just bury yourself in down the rabbit hole of the internet or social media or whatever it might be. And, um, I feel like distractions for me uh, undermine creativity. Like the more distractions that I have, and uh, very often they splinter my attention. And um, but to be able to really focus on one thing, I find that really helps to um, my my creative creative self. What about you? How does that work for you?
1: Same thing, same thing. I think now I have a little bit more discipline and I'm in a a little bit of a routine. So if I lived in Tokyo or New York now, I think it'd be fine. It would be the same thing. I would just be in a very small room (laughs) with the blinds pulled, and ear plugs in and I would get the work done. Uh, I would have to force myself to stay away from the rest of the world. But then I need the rest of the world a little bit, like 5%. I need to go and listen to people, (laughs) listen to their, watch their interactions, see their body language, hear the way they talk, I need to, I need that as well. But it's, for me, it's like
0: 595. I remember one time, I guess I was at a writing conference and, um, someone said, always be sure to live between drafts. It's like, like get out there and experience, you know, like what you said, even if it's 5%, really get out and experience life a little bit, instead of just living in your, your head. Um, So I just find it fascinating. I think there is a big correlation between distractions. Well, I mean, I uh, I guess a reverse correlation between distractions and creativity. It's like they just really do seem to undermine it to me. And um, I love the idea of being able to isolate yourself. I was thinking of there. There was a quote, but I can't remember who said it. Gosh, was it Flannery O'Connor, maybe? I'm not sure. But um, she said something along the lines of the worst thing that you can have as a writer is a window.
2: <laughs> I can't remember who it was her or, who,
0: or who it was. Yeah, that's true. And I'm I think, trying to remember yeah. like the worst thing you can have was a window because like you're writing. I was like, oh, I look out the windows.
1: I get asked about this. I'm like, do you have a really nice view and just watch the moose walk past the window? I'm like, no, I, I have a desk, which is an Ikea dining table facing a wall. I have the blinds pulled. I have my earplugs in. Like sensory deprivation i just want to be in that <laughs> world of the story i don't i don't want to see what's going on
0: yeah yeah that's interesting and um and you're known for writing um uh, kind of intense stories and some thrillers that you've done over the years um what have what have you found to be some of the secrets to creating tension in the stories that uh, that you tell
2: that's a good
1: question. I think for me, it's all about being invested in that protagonist.
0: If, mm.
1: As a reader, for me, if I'm reading a book and I really care about the main character, they feel real to me, three-dimensional, and I do, you know, I, I care what happens to them, I will follow that story wherever it takes. And if that person then is in jeopardy, is in danger, I'm going to be really tense. Mm. That It's all about character for me. It's not yeah. about like putting in shocks and putting in these weird, stunning things that happen. It's about It's rooted in that person. If I genuinely care for that person, and that's not easy to do, I don't think, as a writer, (laughs) to make a character who who really feels like it could be a friend of a friend or a a distant relative, and you care about them. If you can do that, then the tension is natural, Mm -hmm. and it's there all the way through.
0: I think we're on the same page. Um, I kind of define suspense when I teach about suspense writing as apprehension born of concern. Like, we feel apprehensive, when we care about the character, if, if we don't care about the character, we're not going to be apprehensive. We're not going to feel suspended. We're going to like, I don't care if they get killed off or don't get killed off or whatever. But like what, you, I like what you said, where it, it gets back to character. You have to care about them, want what's best for them. And there's peril coming. And what, you know, how are they going to respond? How are they going to get out of this, uh, you know, this difficult situation? So when you... Now there's different views among writers. Some people are like, like, yeah, I make up my characters and others are like, no, I don't make them up. I discover them like they're there. They're like out there and I just meet them. And whatever your approach is, like, how do you create or meet uh, compelling characters that readers will want to spend, you know, 300 or 400 pages with?
1: I'm in the weird latter camp on this, I'm afraid to say. So when I when I have an idea for a story, it normally comes to me late at night when I'm falling asleep. And it normally comes in the form of an image of a landscape. Hmm. And I see a character in that landscape. Often they're walking away from me or running away from me. Hmm. And I'll see that character. And that's all I have. That's my opening thing. So with, with the last one, I saw a ocean liner uh, in the middle of the ocean. And from a kind of aerial point of view, from almost like a drone flying point of view, I flew, if you, if you follow me, through the ship, through these vast interior oh, yeah. spaces huh. in the ship, the, the grill rooms and the lobby. And I saw a woman running away and I realized this was as I was falling asleep, that the whole ship was completely empty hmm. apart from her. And that was all, that's how, what I started with. I was like, what is her story? What, what on earth is going on here? Yeah. And all I do is I, I give it like six months and I just think it through and, and it starts to crystallize. And I see that main character and I start to, I never really know what they look like because I write from a first person point of view, but I see the world through their eyes and I hmm. start to understand their life and how they feel about certain things. And then as soon as I have the confidence that I kind of understand them as a person, I'll start thinking about starting that first draft. And for me, that's a terrifying and very exciting time. And I need to have the confidence to be able to say to myself, you can do this. You've done it before, it's gonna be okay. (laughs) You know, carve out a chunk of time, you can do this. And, uh, And really for me, it's about, it's not about understanding everything that happens in the story and the plot. I uh, rarely know what happens in the plot to a great extent. It's about understanding that main character, hmm. really knowing what they feel about things, their secrets, their grudges, their, their their childhood relationships. I need to know all of that. And then and that comes to me very organically over, like I say, around six months. But the other smaller characters, then I do sit down and think about them. Like they don't come to me organically. I do sit down and think, okay, what is this person's name? And that name is really important to me. I can't start until I have their names and the names are like true to their characters. And then, uh, and then I start writing the first draft and I have a weird process. I write the first draft in about three or four weeks.
0: Huh. Wow. And then you go back and do you sort of dissect it or do you, um, kind of work on it little by little throughout or how, what's the next step after you kind of dump out this first draft?
1: So I do that exorcism draft where it just flies out. <laughs> the
0: exorcism draft. <laughs> yeah.
1: So it takes six, six months of kind of visualizing the whole book. Then I do that draft. And then I lock it away for about between two and four months. Hmm. I don't think about it. I'm exhausted. I don't look at it. I'm working on other projects then, edits for, for other books. And then after three or four months, I will sit down. And I have this anticipation, this sense of uh, terror and excitement. Again, yeah. that mix which is very addictive. And then I'll sit down and I'll read through the book and it takes me a couple of days and I don't write write any notes. I'm just reading it through. Mm. And it's as if I'm reading a book written by someone else Mm. because it comes out in such a fever dreams state. Like I I recognize a lot of it, but a lot of it I don't remember. Mm. And then I I feel like I have the distance to start rewriting it, which takes me a long time.
0: That's super interesting. I'm always interested in uh, sort of the process that different authors... That different authors do and a couple of the things that you noted like just setting it aside for a while and then coming back to it that is i think super helpful and a lot of people don't do it for well maybe logistical reasons or they don't have the time or whatever it is but even if you can't set it aside like if you're listening you're like i can't set aside my book for two months or four or whatever like like he does um like will does um and then maybe even for a couple of maybe a week or a few days or something. And um, because that, d- d- that distance does give you new perspective, doesn't it?
2: You need it. You need
1: to have that cold heart. <laughs> yeah. You know? And you're so attached to this thing that you've created. You need that coldness. And I think, like you say, a week or two, you know, uh, and don't think about it. Don't peek at it. Don't don't go anywhere <laughs> near it. Do completely other things. Watch movies, read other books, read nonfiction do other things and then come back to it and try and, you know, have that fresh pair of eyes because you need them. You need to be brutal at that, at that stage.
0: Now, do you, so, okay. So you dump out the exorcism draft, set it aside, come back to it. And then you start to work through it. Do you tend to edit as you go or do like an entirely new draft and then go back and do another new draft or what sort of, it's the point at that point, what do you do? So
1: at that point, my edits take, two they, they come in two stages each redraft comes in two stages so i'll sit down and i'll read the book and i'll make uh high level notes on a pad of paper like just develop this character better or, or, or condense this and then on the screen as well I'll, I'll write notes and i'll kind of um make small changes and then the second part of that redraft is that i'll go into those high level notes and i'll implement bigger changes Hmm. and then I'll do the whole process again and I'll probably do 10 of those 10 rewrites yeah in total I used to do like 20 and I'm getting a little bit more efficient now and I write a book a year so I have to be it's difficult yeah (laughs) I put too many man hours into each book uh but luckily living in the woods you know I've got nothing else to do so I'm (laughs) I'm one of those (laughs) I'm one of those seven days a week writers my wife doesn't see me that much even though I'm here all the time
0: (laughs) I am a fanatical rewriter as well. So I hear where you're coming from. Um, you know, I'll go through a dozen drafts or more with certain scenes. I've gone through some scenes several dozen times, not, not the whole book necessarily, but, but, um, but I do the same things. Like I just until it feels like it's right. I just keep kind of working at it. And, um, I think today there's a lot of pressure for, you know, aspiring authors to sort of like write something, do a quick edit and send it out there into the world. And um, I think there's a lot of drawbacks to doing that. I feel like that, that, that the path to excellence in writing is very often trod with lots of redrafts and rewrites and, you know, crumpled up sheets of paper and thrown to the side. 100%.
1: 100%. I agree. I, the, my first book that came out in the US is called The Last Thing to Burn. And it's a really short novel. It's like 65,000 words. Hmm. Um, but it's, it took me five years from idea to publication on that book. Yeah. It took me a long time. And I wouldn't let it go until it was ready. Hmm. And I'm like that now. If I write a book and it takes me 10 years, then that book's just going to come out 10 years from now. <laughs> That's fine. I'll work on other books that take one year or two years. But yeah, um, a book takes as long as it takes, I think. And you, you, you have to and i think all of us have this intrinsic kind of understanding that once it's in a bookstore and on a shelf you can't do anything about it so you better make make sure it's as good as you want it to be before it goes out you need to be sick of it before it goes out
0: (laughs) i understand that i've been you can ask my um assistant here if that ever happens but it does um so when you're writing a character um you mentioned a little bit about spending maybe up to six months and s- with them getting to know them do you, are you very purposive about that like do you say you like interview them or something like that or or is is it um is it not that technical of a of a sort of ob- way of getting to know them
1: yeah i'm not that smart i don't do that I, it's more that i think through the story i visualize the story and the key scenes in the story yeah and i see them there almost from a omniscient kind of perspective Mm. I just see them and I watch them and I see how they interact with other people and I see and I try to feel how they would be in that situation Um, and often that changes over time over those six months Mm. and I just get a sense of them I need a sense of them I need to kind of have a, a, a bit of a grip on them and when I'm writing a first draft I don't feel like I'm kind of looking at that world from above I feel like I'm holding up from below my hmm. first draft for me is exhausting and it's like I'm holding up an imaginary world on my shoulders I'm trying to remember all these characters I'm trying to understand and feel the atmosphere of the story I want it to be completely immersive yeah. I want to recreate that sense that childlike sense of walking through the back of the wardrobe for the first time oh yeah and feeling and feeling the snow under your feet you know I remember how vivid that was for me as a kid I want to recreate that because that's what I love to read and I'm addictive addicted to immersive fiction reading and writing so holding up that imaginary world and making it really feel real is absolutely exhausting i am i feel like i'm physically it's a physical task and then the rewriting that we talked about yeah. and that you also do a lot of that's more like normal like i'm not crazy in that period I'm, <laughs> it's more like an office job like i have the piece of work and i have a little distance and i'm just kind of a normal person and i'm, I'm putting my hours in and it's slowly very very slowly and gradually improving which it needs to but that first draft for me it it is like an exorcism it's a physical act it's very very committed and wild and uh my wife will say that i go a little bit odd you know i I often listen i don't listen to anything when i'm writing but after i finish writing at a certain point in the manuscript when i'm like a third of the way in or halfway in and i really feel like i'm in there i'll start listening to the same music over and over again like the same song (laughs) Yeah. I, I probably should have that, that
0: too. like um my my wife and my sister would tell you that they're like we are so sick of hearing whatever so I only listen to it maybe 600 605 times in a row like literally that's <laughs> it and then I find a new song so it's pretty fascinating um I wonder why that I'm is
1: I'm not the only one
0: yeah I wonder why that is if if um there's a per- certain part of your brain that can shut off when it's so familiar with this I'm not I'm I am i am i do not really know. I'm not sure, but but um it's fascinating. It could be
1: that. I think for me as well, sometimes it's it's like an emotional shortcut. It's often a sad song for me, and it just oh, puts uh, me in the place of the book somehow.
0: Now, let's say people are listening and they're like, okay, well, this is really interesting, and maybe I've never heard of someone writing in a specific process or whatever, because very often people are taught you should outline a book, then do a first draft and all this process like this. Um, but I think every author does approach things differently, as long as they're receptive to the story. I mean, it doesn't really matter to me what people's process is, but are there specific things that you've picked up over the years? You didn't really study writing from what I understand, studied uh, law. and and um, But are there things you've picked up, maybe learned the hard way where you're like, no one ever really taught me this about characterization or plot or story or something like that, but you've picked up kind of by just being in the trenches and doing it.
1: hundred percent. Yeah. I, I think three things. One is being a lifelong reader, just reading a lot of fiction, all different genres, reading old, you know, books written 150 years ago, reading the new bestsellers, reading, just reading really widely. Yeah. Uh, it's the number one most important thing. The number two thing, um, is i read i read stephen king's on writing over and over again Uh i think i probably read it 10 times i probably still read it every other year just give me a bit of confidence and i love the fact that it's like i don't really learn much about writing from that book Mm. but it gives me just a bit of confidence it gives me that little bit of a lift like okay maybe i can do this again (laughs) (laughs) and i need that i honestly need that sometimes and then the third thing is exactly as you said being in the trenches. Like uh, before I wrote Dark Pines, which was my debut over here, which is kind of, which is now in the US yet, but it will be soon. And it's kind of a Twin Peaks style, small town mm. mystery, very odd set in Sweden. Before I wrote that, I wrote a terrible book and that was my apprenticeship novel <laughs> and that's locked in a drawer and will be locked <laughs> away forever. will never be published. And I rewrote that book for four or five years. Mm. And it was a fundamentally flawed premise. Like the whole book was was flawed. It had like seven point of view characters. It was set over two years. Hmm. Uh it was terrible. And I think it was set over five different countries as well. And I <laughs> t- kept trying to get that better. And I was querying agents with it, agents uh. in the States, agents in the UK, and they were and I got it getting nowhere. And then after like four years, I started getting nibbles from agents. Agents started requesting the full manuscript. Hmm. And then I withdrew it from them. And I did that because I knew I didn't want it to be my debut. And I was scared oh, that it might slip through and, and get me an agent. And then it wouldn't be published or it would be published mm. not in the right way. So I withdrew it. And then I wrote Dark Pines, my debut, which is very, very small and compact. It's one person's point of view set over two weeks in one small town. Mm. So that was me learning the hard way. That, like, For me, I like a really focused, isolated setting. Yeah, I want a book to feel like, almost like it's a, a play in a theater's tiny theater above a pub in London oh yeah and the pub and the theater has a little stage that's kind of uneven it has like three actors and in the audience there's 10 people you're one of them and <laughs> you can see the 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 actors vapor from their breath you know you can smell them you can see their sweat and you feel like you're part of the performance and that's what i want to create as a writer because that's what i love to read uh, and I learned that the hard way by writing that sprawling, epic failure <laughs> before I started <laughs> writing my proper books.
0: <laughs> I've always been a big believer that story trumps structure, that one story, you know, might be short. That's fine. Tell her a short story and don't try to make it longer than it should be. Or one maybe is a, you know, a bigger story. And um, don't try to chop off 50 or, well, 15 or 20,000 words if it needs to be, you know, big story. And- So my stories tend to look different, um, depending on that story. You know, that's like some of them have one point of view, like you mentioned, like a kind of compact. And some have well, one of them actually, you're going to say, Steve, this was you should never do this. Like, and you're right, I you should never do this. But one of them has 17 point of views. Like, I know I would never tell someone ever to write 17 point of views. So. But that was the least number that I could do to tell that story. So, um, so it was very. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I absolutely <laughs> love like, it. I, would, yeah. I don't.
2: I don't want to write it, but I won't read
1: it. You know. That, oh my that. goodness. Yeah. I mean, George George Saunders did it with Lincoln and the Bardo. I think he had mm-hmm. like fifty odd characters. characters. It's doable. You can do it. I just. Uh, I'm just terrified of it. Yeah. <laughs> but you can do it.
0: Well, I would never recommend. <laughs> I would never tell someone. Oh, you ought to do it. But it's like that story. I just couldn't figure out how to tell it without these different point of views and stuff. So I like your approach. And um, um, I, was, I was curious, you know, if you want to tell us a little bit more about your latest book, I know it's called The Last Passenger over in the UK, the last one here in the States. Um, you mentioned that it was almost like watching through a drone as you zeroed in on this, you know, this, uh, this ship out in the ocean, tell us a little bit about that story.
1: So the main character is a woman called Kaz Ripley and she's from Yorkshire in the UK. She runs a, a coffee house and she's never been outside of the UK, never been on vacation. And she has a new partner. She's 50 years old, she has a new partner. They decide to go on a crossing to New York on a ship called the RMS Atlantica. And they have a great first night. You know, they're still in the kind of early days of their romance, they have a great first night. Dinner It's fantastic, they have a walk on deck. They go back to their cabin And then the next morning she wakes up and he's not there beside her. Hmm. And she goes to the balcony. He's not there. She checks the bathroom. He's not there either. She walks outside and in the corridor, all of the doors are wedged open and they're all unoccupied. She starts to run around the ship and she realizes she's steaming into the mid-Atlantic and she's the only person on board.
0: That's a super interesting premise. And then um, one of the things, whenever I watch a show with my wife, um, like we'll be watching some TV show and something will happen, you know something's going on. And I was like, I always like grab her leg I say, something's going to happen or something's going to go wrong, <laughs> you know. Like a, like as if that's a big revelation, you know. Like that something's actually going to go wrong. she's just like shakes her head, like obviously something's going to go wrong. <laughs> so actually, remind me, I saw this movie years ago with Tom Cruise in it called Vanilla Sky. And at the beginning, he wakes up and he he's in like New York. Well. Times Square in New York, and no one is there. Like he's walking down, finally, he's like running down the street because if you have a Tom Cruise movie, you have to have him run at some point. It's like, I think in his contract, he's got to do the run. But um, but anyway, and in that case, he kind of wakes up and realizes that it was the dream or whatever it was. But when you were describing that, just that idea of like being thrown into a place where everything is exactly the opposite of what you expect no one is there and you have no idea why so it almost sounds like the beginning of a twilight zone magazine or a twilight zone episode not magazine i don't know if you ever remember the twilight zone back in the day but i
1: do yeah i mean i i had no idea why why this had happened or what had happened i just knew that she was scared and that she had no way to get an answer to her question of what's hmm. happened so it's very it's very it's quite bleak and stark and it's one person like out there in the middle of nowhere and i realized months after i wrote the first draft and before i had given her her surname i realized that it's kind of inspired by alien the movie Hmm. that sense that you're on this big steel ship in the middle of nowhere no one's there to help you and i think with alien those characters are all quite relatable because they're all kind of blue collar kind of oil Mm. rig type workers yeah yeah. they didn't make them very futuristic and on this ship it's the same i wanted her to be very relatable a normal person so that you can imagine as a reader what it's like to be there and not have someone in uniform to ask Mm. the question not have your your phone connecting so you can google something you know that's very scary
0: you mentioned earlier something I didn't really ask too much about, but I've been thinking about it and I, I was fascinated by it. And you mentioned names like that. You want to make sure that the name you have for character is integral in some way to who they are, that there, it's sort of like some honesty between that. First of all, tell me a little bit about that, because I have found that to be true in some cases. And f- tell me if you figured out why that is. Like, what what is going on in our brains that we're like no nah, I can't call him Bob it's it's got to be Bill like or whatever and you're just like what? I, what how does that work
1: you probably know better than I do I don't I don't know I have no idea and I don't I don't I'm not sure I want to know it's just a it's a gut thing and I, tend gut too, thing. Yeah, I yeah yeah I did an interview with the Guardian a couple of years ago and I said you know I don't I don't consider myself a particularly intellectual writer because I'm not trying to like I'm I'm just trying to tell a story that's in me that's bursting out. That exorcism draft is what it's all about yeah. for me. I live for that draft. I live for that process. And um, it's the same with names. It needs to feel right in my gut. It needs to that like it will there's only one name that can fit that particular <laughs> character. And I have to just keep working at it until I get to that name. And then it'll be like bang, it's in, and then I'm in the story. And they feel even more real and I can go with it.
0: There was in the latest book that I wrote, I had this one character, kind of a, a villain character, and his name was Carl. Anyway, Carl was, I think, very interesting, but just the pacing of it, I needed to change be- because I was in his point of view for so long in the beginning that the pace just didn't quite work. So I talked to my editors and I was like, we're going to have to take out the first chapter. Like, It's 5,000 words. It's a long chapter with this villain. And so I was like, I, I was like, yeah, I need to do something a little different. So anyway, so I found out, uh, I had this new idea. And the first chapter from 5,000 words went to 500. And I just gave this other guy his name, same name, Carl. But it, it just didn't feel right. Like, And so as I'm writing it, I was like, no, his name is Soren. It's like Soren Kierkegaard. I was like, his name is Soren. And so then I was going through the book and there were all these scenes. And I couldn't just change the name Carl to Soren. Because it didn't feel honest, like the things that he said, the the way that he replied to stuff, it all changed once his name changed from Carl to Soren. And uh, and and the fact that I remember writing one series of edits, I sent it in, and I was like, yeah, I had to really rewrite this scene because it just wasn't honest. It wasn't Soren; it was still Carl or something like that. And I was just like, what are you? What are you talking about? <laughs> like, like it just didn't feel honest anymore. So yeah
1: 100 percent. yeah soren's a great name uh, i think when i when my my wife is my first reader mm. thank thank goodness and uh before my agent receives the book and she often will read it and she'll be like, sh- halfway through she'll be like who who's kevin you know who's this guy and it, it's just it's a different person and i forgot to change the name because oh, i've changed kevin. the name 10 times since <laughs> i'm writing it's very tough for her <laughs>
0: So um, do you have a favorite character that's appeared in, in really any of your novels? And um, and if you do have a favorite character, what is it about them that is so memorable or fascinating to you?
1: I guess I have a few. I mean, with the series that I write that isn't out in the States yet, uh, the two Vermoudison books uh, that are published all over the world, they I love Tuva because she's a she's a young deaf journalist mm. working at a small town newspaper. And I feel like I know her now because I've I don't know, I've written over half a million words, well over with her. And and she's just fascinating because she's she doesn't really have much of a family. Her family is her editor in the newspaper and her best friend. She has a very modern kind of family, mm. made up of people she chooses to be with. And because of her deaf, she feel deafness, she feels a little bit isolated at times and it takes her a while to form relationships but then when she does she has these really strong friendships really enduring friendships and I just love writing that town because it's such a weird creepy little town it's (laughs) dominated by a gothic salt licorice factory so I love writing Tuva I've just finished writing the sixth Tuva miri book and then with the standalones I think every protagonist I really enjoy because I spend so much time with them And I feel I get to know them and they feel, they feel real. So I understand some of their darkness Mm. and that's something we all, we all have some kind of darkness, some kind of trauma or some kind of uh, insecurity that we're working through. And it's sometimes very hard for us to identify that ourselves. Mm. But if you're writing a character, you kind of understand it. Perhaps quicker than you do when you interrogate your own prejudices or your own history. So with, with Kaz Ripley in the last one, She's really holding her whole family together. She's running this coffee house. She's employing local people, including her sister. Her mom has dementia. She has a lot of like she's putting out a lot of fires every day. Mm. And then as soon as she goes on vacation for the first time, she feels a little bit lost. She has that travel anxiety. Mm. like, how is everybody at home? And then suddenly she can't contact them. So that yeah. amplifies. Um and I like her. she has she she has a really complicated emotion in her past which she has a sense of shame. Because her father was a gambling addict and caused a lot of problems for a lot of people. So their family are always dealing with the the shame of those episodes. And I think that's a really powerful emotion that we don't tend to talk about that much.
0: I like how you referred to, you said something like, um, I'm aware of their darkness or something along those lines. That's a neat line. I've never heard anyone really say it that way before, but we do all have secrets or shame or you know guilt or whatever and and i feel like if you write a character and you don't know some of that they'll probably come across maybe as a little bit shallow or maybe not as honest but i'm not saying you have to dive completely into darkness for every character but but um i feel like to be honest about people in real life like what draws me to a character is the depth it isn't just sort of an artifice. Uh, it's like, oh, yeah, the, I understand why they're feeling this way or why they're carrying this, you know, this with them. And uh,
1: 100%. I think that's why if I'm if I'm reading like a, a Dennis Lehane novel or a Sarah Waters novel or a Michelle Faber novel or a S.A. Cosby novel, because the characters, they have that darkness. They have that honesty, that brutal hmm. honesty. Uh, which we're all trying to kind of mask over different parts of our personas just to get through the day, just to stay married, just to get through the week. And there's so it's so, there's such brutal, bleak honesty in those books. Cormac McCarthy does that very well as well. You just like, you 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 have to be committed to that book. You have to be in that story as a reader. And I, I love that. I That sense of immersion and truth and authenticity is really
0: powerful. Do you find that? Creating characters that sort of have a dichotomy is interesting. Um, the reason I ask is just recently, I was reading about this, um, a, a saint, St. Teresa of Avila, um, whose poems and prayers and so on are still around today, but but she lived hundreds of years ago. I don't remember exactly what year she'd, but apparently she was known for really loving her food, like, whenever she would eat. And this was the quote someone was like upset that she was eating a, a pheasant and just like so into this pheasant. So they kind of gave her a hard time. And St. Teresa of Avila said, When it's time to pray, pray. When it's time to pheasant, pheasant. I'm like, <laughs> I just love that. That this lady, you know, known for her prayer life or whatever, and she's just like, Man, when it's time to pheasant, pheasant. She's turned pheasant into a verb. I'm like, that's so much fun. But anyway, just like that little anecdote makes me want to know more about this character immediately. I'm like, okay, that's fascinating to me. It's sort of this dichotomy.
1: Time to pheasant. That's brilliant. I love that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah and funny. you're right. I mean, we're all we're all human. We're all human. Uh, yeah, people. I mean, a book. a a tv series a movie you get an insight into someone in their private life you know when they're not being watched by society like how do people really act does someone use a spoon to take something out of that jar (laughs) does someone drink straight out of the carton you know you see that honesty and it's very alluring it's very uh it's very intriguing because we all have masks or we all you know we all present a certain version of ourselves to the world so yeah, it's uh, it's almost being it's almost a bit voyeuristic reading a good book.
0: <laughs> well, um, I've really enjoyed uh, the chance to chat, Will, about uh, just about writing about your new book, and and uh, before we close up here, just have a couple quick questions. I'm always interested in books that other authors recommend. You mentioned a couple of authors earlier, some of the books that you've enjoyed. What would you say is there? What would you say is the one novel besides yours? that everyone should read before they die do you have like one novel where you're like literally if you have to read one novel read this one that's a tough question that's really i know tough. it's not I a fair finished. question i always ask writers how am i supposed to choose which, which one
1: <laughs> i'm gonna go with my favorite book which is not for everyone but it's the road by cormac mccarthy oh uh-huh and I think it's the most powerful, one of the most powerful novels ever written. And I, I just love the simplicity of it, the starkness of it, and the fact that it's all about this relationship, this beautiful, simple relationship between a father and son. Mm. Just taking care, the father taking care of the son, and then increasingly, as you work your way through the book, the son taking care of the father. Mm. And that's exactly what happens in life. Mm. And it's, uh, it's a very beautiful, very sad, very disturbing book. But I re- I reread it a lot, and the language is extraordinary. And I think that's that's my choice.
0: It's a good choice. I think that the language is pretty extraordinary in that book. And um, so, yeah, if, if people, if you haven't ever read it, I feel like it's far different than the movie. Like they did a movie, I think, with Viggo Mortensen, that, um, that I feel like in this case, I would rather say, just go ahead and read the book, because it's a totally different experience, I feel like than actually watching that movie so i haven't seen the
1: movie we don't have a lot of uh, electricity here but i do i in the book i love the first line of the book it's some i can't remember what it is but it's something like when i wake in the middle of the night in the forest i reach out and feel for him or something like that it's just this this instinct when he wakes up to just reach out and touch for his son to make sure he's okay and that sums up the whole book
0: amazing that's great so, the other question is, what is one thing you wish you could tell your younger self, let's say back when you were a teenager? If you could whisper back through the years, is there are there any words of advice or observations that you would give to your younger self?
1: I think just a little reassurance. I was a very shy, socially awkward kid and mm-hmm. teenager, and I really felt felt found my comfort in books and in nature. So I would just say, you know, keep keep going, keep trying. Simple
0: as that. Perseverance, that's good. But earlier, you were mentioning something along the lines of like, when you're writing, you're like, I can do this. I've done it before. Like, I can finish this book. And I was interviewing Sandra uh, Brown, and I asked her sort of some questions. She's like, Yeah, I always struggle with like self doubt. And I was like, Self doubt? And she's like, Yeah. And, I always feel like I'm never going to be able to finish the book I'm writing. And then I look up at the shelf and I see I've written 65 New York Times bestsellers. And I'm like, okay, I can finish <laughs> this one. So so it's like, you know, most of us <laughs> can't look at the shelf and see 65 New York Times bestsellers. But but it's so true. So many authors that I know, we struggle with this idea of like, is anyone going to like this? Is it any good? Can I finish it? And we just... it's So yeah, many of us go through that. I mean...
1: what what I was saying before about holding up this imaginary world and the weight of it that's I feel like it's just a it's teetering. it's going to collapse at any moment Mm. if I make a wrong move the whole thing will collapse the career will be over Mm. you know it's 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 that terrifying so um yeah I think we all need to be reassured and that's why I reread as well because it gives me some sense of reassurance
0: excellent well well, I wish you all the best with your new book, Will. Um, it's available now here in the States. It's called The Last One. Also available in the UK, The Last Passenger. So um, before we close up, I was just going to say, do you have any um, closing words of advice or thoughts for any other authors out there um, who might you know, be dabbling with an idea and um, and thinking, maybe I want to write this. Maybe I want to be a storyteller
1: i think two things one thing just keep reading and 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 distance yourself from the rest of the world Mm. distance yourself from publishing just focus on the stories and 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 it takes as long as it takes you're on your own path Mm. you know don't compare yourself to other people Um, and the second thing is when you're querying agents when you start doing that just assume that it it's just going to be hundreds of rejections and years and years of that and just assume the price that in that's the way it's going to be because that's the way it was for me and for every other author I know. And just just assume that those first hundred queries, you're never gonna hear from them, not even a rejection. You It's just gonna disappear
2: and <laughs> just
0: keep going. Keep going. <laughs> keep going, yes. Persevere and keep it up. Well, thanks again, Will. I really appreciated uh, the time and the insights that you shared. Also, is there a place online where you'd like to direct people? Maybe if you are in the States doing a book signing, or uh, do you have a website or web presence, social media, anything like that that you like to direct people to?
1: Sure. You can find me on on Twitter and Instagram at Will And that's a lot of uh, book stuff, but it's also a lot of forest life, off-grid forest life, Nice. my enormous uh, St. Bernard and the cabin in the woods. So there's a lot of that. And also I should say as well on YouTube, I've got a YouTube channel where I, it's just purely me giving little tips and encouragement to new writers and talking about process, talking about uh, querying tips, how to write a synopsis, how to write a query letter, all of that kind of thing. Trying to give back a little bit because I remember how daunting it was to be in the query trenches. So you can find me on YouTube for that.
0: Is there a specific channel there or just search for your name? It's,
1: yeah, you can search for my my name or Will Dean Forrest Author. Forest Author. Fantastic.
0: Well, thanks also to all of our listeners. Uh, thank you for tuning in uh, for more info about our guests and to check out our other interviews. You can always search for us wherever you listen to your podcasts or click to thestoryblender.com for more information and uh, biographies about our, our guests. Don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts on Fridays. Tell your stories well, my friends. And always remember,
1: the art of the story is all in the blend.
0: Take care, everyone. We'll see you next time.